Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Mixtape with Scott, where we dive into the personal stories of economists, scientists, and authors. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham, and I'm thrilled to have you uh, with us today. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing the talented John Roth, an inspiring young econometrician and assistant professor at Brown University. John's work on difference and differences has been making waves uh, in the field of econometrics and throughout the applied community, and I was eager to learn more about his life journey and the experiences that got him to where he is today. We covered a lot of topics, wide range of things from uh, growing up in Massachusetts and uh, his love for sports and math as a kid, finding his way through graduate school, selecting his fields as he moved into the job market, and even the, the sociology of the applied empirical community uh, versus the econometricians. And so John shared also a lot of valuable advice about doing what you love and following your passions over trying to predict what you think the market is going to want. And for those of you interested in learning more about John's work, he's going to be hosting a workshop on advanced difference and differences on Friday, April 21st. Just Google uh, Mixtape Sessions, <clears throat> an online platform uh, for really talented, uh, smart people to teach uh, people over Zoom, um, econometric methodologies that uh, help sort of run. So uh, if you want to find more information about the workshop, learn about any discounts that are available for students, uh, as well as anybody facing various liquidity constraints and people from developing countries, just go to the website, shoot me an email, and I can, I can talk to you about it. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce you to the incredible John Roth. Just sit back, relax, enjoy this uh, casual conversation we had. And uh, as always, please share, like, and subscribe to the Mixtape with Scott so you don't miss any of our amazing guests. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it is a pleasure to have uh, on the, the podcast uh, a person I've gotten to, to know a little bit uh, the last couple of years online, uh, John Roth. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Of course. Pleasure's mine. Great to be here. Can you start off, and for the sake of the listener, tell us your your name and your job title and, and who your boss is? Uh, I'm John Roth. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at Brown. Uh, the department chair is John Friedman, so I guess he's my boss. He's your boss. Uh, yeah, I, I do some some uh, workshops for Scott, so I guess you're my boss a little bit too. But <laughs> yeah, right. He he does payroll though. I don't I don't do that. Um, so okay, so I have a little icebreaker. Um, so if you could describe yourself in three words, uh, actually do it this way. If you could describe, if you could, if, uh, if I was to talk to, um, yeah, we'll do it this way. So if you would describe yourself in three words, what would they be? And why, why would you say that? Ooh, three words. You're like AR insights editor, but like <laughs> even stricter. Um, <laughs> i'm gonna do i'm gonna cheat i'm gonna do four words all right i'm gonna do nerd who's kind of cool <laughs> nerd is kind of cool cool very good all right well why would you say that i don't know i feel like you know like i'm like a huge nerd like i love talking about econometrics or like sports and stuff but then like also like my wife always gives me crap that I was a fraternity brother in college. And like, <laughs> I feel like she's like a, like 
like a straight nerd and was like oh like you were like so cool like you went to all these parties like you were always drunk like you know um you know I'm like really into sports like I feel like I'm like I'm like a huge nerd but I can also be you know one of the guys yeah uh, so yeah I don't know <laughs> I did not expect to just like start talking about being a fraternity brother in college. That was not where I thought this was going to go like immediately, but um, yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Which, which fraternity were you in? I was in Sigma Alpha Mu, often oh, called Sigma. Sammy. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that one. Okay. That was at Penn. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, here we go. All right. So, so let's go back to when you were a kid. So tell me about your childhood. Where'd you grow up? What'd your parents uh, do living? I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, uh, so outside of Boston. Um, my dad uh, worked in speech recognition, so uh, mm. like he worked on the original Siri products, um, and before that on Dragon Actually Speaking. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's like a yeah. desktop dictation software. That was a long time um, ago. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was in grad school. It was like you would talk into it. It would do all your... Your dad worked on that? Yeah. Wow. So um yeah he was one of the founders of dragon and he um like worked on he worked at uh what was voice signal and is now nuance which uh at the beginning did siri apple subsequently took it over um so yeah that's pretty cool uh and my mom raised me and my two brothers so you know she was also (laughs) working pretty hard (laughs) yeah oh so his so that company was in massachusetts where'd you say it was yeah uh so i grew up in newton uh it was uh for a time in newton and in other kind of moved to other suburbs of the boston area oh okay okay was he a faculty somewhere or was he just he was just in private industry no he was in private industry so he did he did a phd in physics uh and then did a couple of postdocs and then the um the job market for theoretical physicists is if you're not like you know albert einstein is not great so he was like an mit undergrad so he came back to boston like went to the mit career office and was like i need a job and somehow got hooked up with um some people you know who are in the very early stage of developing speech recognition and they were like you seem smart like we can <laughs> teach you how to write some computer code and like do this stuff so that's super cool that's super cool what i didn't expect you to tell me that uh well, so how do you think that environment with your mom and your dad and your your siblings growing up and growing up, you know, around that kind of cool, innovative stuff, how do you think that shaped your interests and kind of your values? Good question. Uh, I mean, so I guess while we're on the topic of my dad, I guess, you know, I always felt like my dad was smarter than me, like, you know, smarter than everyone who could be smarter than my dad. And so the fact that he couldn't make it in academia doing theory, like always kind of left me with this, like I'm going to do something practical. And so I've been like slowly kind of giving up on stages of that. So it was like, Oh, like, I don't want to be an academic. Like that's too hard a life to make it. And like, I want to do something useful. And like, there's no, if my dad couldn't do it, there's no way I'm smart enough. And then it was like, I kind of got into research and it was cool. And I was like, all right, but I'm going to do like applied, like, you know, labor econ research that has like actual 
you know, like real world applications. I'm not going to do theory like my dad. And then like, I kind of got into econometrics. Yeah. And so, so it's like every, the step of the way I've been a little bit like, wait, is this really what I'm doing with my life? But right, right, it's kind right. of been <laughs> the road I've gone down. So it's yeah. working out all right so far. I That's guess. awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, he can't, he kind of like, he, so it sounds like he's a big, he's a big figure in your life. That, that, that sounds right. Yeah, for sure. Both my parents. Are. So, so are you related to Al Roth? I heard that. I am. Al is my first cousin twice removed. Oh yeah, so how does that work? I've never. For those who don't have, yeah, PhDs in genealogy. <laughs> so Al is Al is uh, on paper is first cousins with my grandfather. So his first cousins with your grandfather. His father and my grandfather's father were brothers. Oh, but he's okay. like, it's like one of those like weird deals where he's. I think almost exactly the same age as my dad, mm. but he like, you know, skipped a generation. So he's technically on the level of my grandfather. I see. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So y'all have like, so is, is your family kind of, is your extended family pretty close? Is it pretty big? Y'all all, I mean, like you knew him kind of growing up. So Al, I kind of knew because he was at Harvard for a lot of the time that I was, you know, growing up in the Boston area and his son, Ben and I are exactly the same age. Mm. Um, and so uh, like there are other people of the same distance from me and the family tree who I've like never met, mm. but Al, I sort of knew growing up, but I can't say we were super close. It was like, you know, once or twice a year, like our families would get together, we'd have dinner, we'd play ping pong in the basement. So like for most of, my life until I became like an adult academic economist. Like I thought of Al as like, you know, this like guy who's cousins with my dad who happens to be very good at ping pong. Right. <laughs> like, it, like it wasn't really until he won the Nobel prize when I was like an undergrad at the time that I realized that he was like professionally a big deal. And he won a Nobel prize. He's really good at ping pong. And he won the Nobel prize. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, so growing up in, uh, in in Massachusetts, what what kind of stuff did you like to do as a as a kid and in high school? Uh, it was pretty much all sports all the time. Yeah. Um, like, you know, so in high school I played basketball, tennis, and I ran cross country, mm. and like, you know, I played touch football all the time with friends growing up like <laughs> just basically any any sport i could play i love playing pretty much yeah um and so yeah that was pretty much my life as a kid i mean i like i obviously you know did reasonably well in school and like right. did homework and stuff but yeah. like yeah i i watched a lot of watched a lot of sports and played a lot of sports i guess yeah. would be the the short version of my yeah. my yeah. childhood what yeah. was your best sport in terms of playing or watching or yeah, that you were good at, or that you were good at. What was your favorite sport, and what was your? I guess it's probably the same thing. What was your favorite sport, and what was you? What were you particularly felt like you were good at? So, as a kid, like as a young kid, I was really good at soccer. I was a really good goalie, um, and that was really fun until I got older. So, like youth soccer, the field is small, the goals are small, uh -huh. and the players aren't that good, so the goalies get a lot of shots. So, there's like a uh -huh. lot you can do. Yeah, And then as you get older, the field gets bigger, the nets get bigger, and the defenders get better. 
Uh-huh. And so just the fraction of shots that you can, one, that you get on goal, but two, that you can save just decreases very rapidly as you age mm-hmm. as a soccer player. Mm-hmm. And so I love being a goalie in youth soccer until I was like, you know, 13 or 14 years old, because mm-hmm. there was just like a lot of activity that you could do. Right. But then as I got older, you just start getting fewer shots on net. And then of the shots you get, the goal is bigger. The shots are bigger. So like, there's just a substantial fraction of the shots on net that you just have no chance. Uh, and so kind of the, the amount of activity that you can like actually, you know, have some value added in, I found went down a lot, like as I got to high school. You, could, so tell, I, like, you could see it happening. It's like a pretty yeah, sharp thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It was, it was maybe not completely sharp, but it would like went from a point where I like loved playing goalie to where mm. I was just getting like a little bit bored of it. Um, so like as a kid, I played a ton of soccer and was like a good goalie. And then I got kind of tired of it. And then like in high school, I got more into basketball. Mm. Um, so I, in high school, I, I played, like, I had not played a lot of basketball as a kid. So I like started playing a lot of pickup with friends. And then like by my senior year, like I made the the varsity team at my high school, uh, in basketball and then mainly rode the bench for the entire year. But, uh, you know, I played a lot of basketball with friends and in practice and stuff. Uh, yeah, throughout high yeah, school. yeah. Well, so uh, were were there any like people when you were in high school that like had one of those you know, big influences on your academic interests, like role models or mentors or anything like that? I don't know. Um, I, uh, I mean, I had a math teacher who was really awesome in high school. Ms. Seidel was her name. Mm. I guess I was, I mean, so for most of school, I was super bored in math. I hated math because I thought it was really boring. And like, from my perspective, like we'd like in fourth grade, we would mainly just review all the stuff we did at third grade. And then there would be like a little bit new material at the end. And then like in fifth grade, we would basically review the stuff we did in fourth grade, which is a review of third grade. Like I just thought it was, it was very slow for me. And so I didn't really like math a lot growing up yeah um and then i felt in high school i had a few teachers like this uh teacher uh miss seidel the most prominent of which that made math more interesting because they actually made it a little bit challenging yeah um so i feel like i started getting more into math in high school which obviously kind of led down the path of being an econometrician um but certainly at the time it didn't feel like it was you know, like transformational, like this is what I want to do all the time. It was kind of like, oh, like that's not as boring as I thought it would be. Yeah. But that might just be me as like a snarky teenager was like not, you know, gonna yeah. get all excited. Oh, this is really gonna change my life. Like that was not really <laughs> well were you did, did anything happen in high school where you would have like hurt I mean you got your your cousin that's gonna win the Nobel Prize in economics, but were you like beyond that kind of just halo of economics in the family was there things that you were thinking that i like economics or you knew what much anything substantive about it in high school not really i mean you know as i said like al was like more of a ping pong partner than a you know someone i really knew anything about econ about and i didn't like i i went to a relatively small jewish high school like we didn't have an econ ap or like anything like that in high school so i knew like almost nothing about econ mm. as a fields like until i got to penn yeah um i guess i you know i was always good at math like i liked quantitative stuff even if i thought the classes were boring and then i also really liked 
you know, social sciences. So like, I really liked mm. history. Like I was on the mock trial team in high school. Like I liked that, like lawyerly type of stuff. So, you know, I, I sort of, I kind of vaguely knew that econ had some mix of like social science with math type of right. stuff. And so it was right. something that interested me as I was approaching college. Yeah. But I think I basically knew nothing about it, you know, as a high schooler. Yeah. So you go to Penn. So you get to Penn. And what are you immediately thinking, you know, as you get there, like both like socially and also academically, like you, you have a, you have in mind like a plan of like what you want your major to be pretty quickly. Not really when I got there, like, you know, I, as I said, I did mock trial in high school. So I thought, Oh, maybe like I want to be a lawyer. Right. Um, but then I also sort of knew I liked quantitative stuff. So I, I took some econ classes early on, but I would say I wasn't, it wasn't like I knew right away that like, that's what I wanted to do. But I yeah, think yeah. by like my sophomore year, like I'd take an intro to micro and macro and stuff. And I, I liked that it had that mix of quantitative and social stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, reasonably good at it. So like, I think by my beginning of my sophomore year, I sort of had the idea that that's what I wanted to major in. Oh, econ, um, you, you, I, e you e double major, but you were thinking econ is the one you start thinking about. Yeah. So math, I did a little bit later, like, um, uh, Ufuk Oxygen, who's at Chicago now, but he was at Penn, um, who's a macroeconomist. He taught me like intermediate macro as a sophomore. Mm. Um, and I did well in his class and I was talking to him and I was like, I'm interested in econ. And he was like, you should definitely think about getting a PhD. Which, to be honest, at the time, I didn't really know so much what that involved. Yeah. But he was like, you know, if you want to get a PhD, you should take some more, like, higher level math classes. Um, and so I started, you know, taking real analysis and stuff like that. And I kind of liked that. And I'd taken a lot of the classes already. So I added that as a second major. Yeah. Uh, I think a little bit later on. Yeah. You know, like, obviously, you're a really smart person. But there's lots of smart people that don't like, that don't find that math, like, comes naturally to him but it seems like you're both kind of like really smart but math has always felt like kind of like a you you really enjoy it well why do you, what's your personality that would made math so easy for you or made made it something you really enjoyed for such a long part of your life uh yeah i don't know i mean i guess i'm not sure i would say i enjoyed it for a long part of my life like it was always it always came naturally to me but i guess i in most of school, I found it really boring because it just felt like it was the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, I think it wasn't really until like late in college or oh, sorry, late in high school or in college where it started to become more challenging. And like you, I felt like it started making, you know, progress Yeah, that, that it was something that I, I came to really like. Um, but I do think, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, it's hard for me to say what it is I like about it. It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I guess now I kind of like, like, you know, there's like this, you know, people talk about warm glow, right? Like, you know, what gives you warm glow from an activity? And I kind of like, like, you know, you set up some problem and you're a little bit confused and then you make some progress or you like think of some different angle and that gets you to the answer. And just like the the process of, you want to prove something or derive something and you aren't really sure. And then you think of some angle and then you can just kind of see things working out along that angle and you get to the answer, like just kind of gives me, gives me that warm glow. 
and you know i guess i it's don't know connected you know it's not connected with your your love of sports in any way is it are those two things like is there something about you know that kind of like strategic approach to solving a problem and your how you think deeply about sports those aren't the same parts of the brain is it for you no no i don't think so i mean i think it's like you know i get a warm glow from solving a math problem or like hitting a three-pointer in someone's face but it's like they're just like you know they seem just like completely different spheres and parts of the brain Uh, i I was definitely not one of those like sports nerds that was like you know i got really into math because i was like calculating like baseball value added on my slide rule you know like there is that like type of nerd that like gets into math because they want to do it for sports and that was like very much not me Mm. um so yeah i don't i'm not sure i see like a an yeah. obvious link between right. the two of them besides right. that like i like doing it you know yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so 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 this guy that sends up the macroeconomist he makes a big impression on you is there anybody else do you t- end up taking any econometrics while you're at penn that has that same kind of like hey i kind of like this uh i did take a bunch of econometrics at penn um so it's funny i i um we had uh ario de paula here for a seminar a couple of of weeks ago and and he was he taught me like the first econometrics class at Penn um so that was kind of cool that is um to have him out um and (laughs) to my surprise he actually remembered who I was uh, which is good (laughs) uh but um but yeah uh so I took that I took a bunch of classes in the stats department too um and then i i did take like i took the first of the grad econometrics classes when i was a Mm. senior Mm. uh that actually that was like kind of a crazy story so by my by my junior year i kind of knew i i thought i knew i wanted to do a phd in econ um again at the time i still don't think i was quite sure what a phd in econ entailed like i don't think like i I, I would not advise people to follow the path that I followed into a PhD in econ, which was just like, I kind of liked econ and I was like, all right, I'll keep on doing it. But I like, <laughs> I like, like, I think I like didn't really realize like what the PhD involved and what it's preparing you for. Right. But I, I had said it in my mind that, you know, this was a thing that I was going to do as a junior. Yeah. And so I took the, the math camp that Penn has mm. like for the PhD students as like the summer after my junior year. Oh, after your junior year. So, so like before I was a senior. Oh. And I was actually planning to take um, the grad micro class as a Mm -hmm. senior. But I took the math camp and I did well in the math camp. And they had like this prize for the people who had the top two scores in the math camp. They gave them Hayashi's econometrics textbook. Uh Uh-huh. And so I won this econometrics textbook in the summer before my senior year. And I was like, well, I have the textbook. So I might as well not buy another textbook and just take (laughs) econometrics. And so I took grad econometrics with Xu Chang and uh, Frank Uh Shorefida. Basically, entirely like, you know, I was a complier based on textbooks, basically. <laughs> like, you know, if they'd given me the macro textbook, like I might have taken the macro class. Like, you know, we might I might not be on this podcast. I can't say that that grad econometrics class like convinced me that I wanted to do econometrics. Like that uh, took me and not like there was a whole nother path of like 
because again you know like my dad was a theorist like right. clearly i'm not smart enough to be a theorist like that was definitely still the attitude at the time right um so like there was another couple of years of like me thinking i was going to be like an applied micro like mm. labor type of person yeah um but definitely that foundation like sort of set me up as like you know econometrics is interesting like it's something i'm pretty good at such that like as I my interest starting getting more and more econometricsy, that background was definitely important. Yeah. Yeah. What were your teachers saying to you while you were still kind of like continuing to do better and better in econometrics and, and all of these advanced econ classes? What were they what kind of feedback were you starting to experience get from them? So people definitely told me I should go to grad school. And then like I thought I was gonna go to grad school. Um my so I was originally planning to just like apply my senior year and go straight. And then um, all of my, or most of my friends at Penn, Penn is like a very pre-professional place. Mm. It has, you know, Warden undergrad is like yeah. a business school. And, and that right. just kind of has spillovers onto everyone else. So there's like, like the modal Penn undergrad is like, you know, interviewing for like either like McKinsey, BCG and Bain um, consulting mm -hmm. types of jobs or like, you know, Goldman Sachs type of, you know, investment banking jobs. Right. And so, you know, I got to my senior year and all my friends were doing all these interviews and I'd like kind of had it in my mind that I was going to go to grad school. But again, at the time, like, I don't think I really appreciated that like econ grad school is like preparation for being like a full-time econ researcher. And like, I hadn't done that much research. Yeah. I just like taken a lot of classes and like life taking classes and so I like, kind of had this freak out my senior year of like, am I really signing myself up for five or six more years of school that I don't really know what I'm doing? And I don't really know, like I've been in school basically my entire life and I've never really done anything else. Yeah. And so I like had like a kind of freak out of like, is this really what I'm doing? And so I, um, I, didn't apply to grad school my senior year. And I worked for a year at Cornerstone Research, which does yeah. economics consulting. Mm -hmm. um, and so my path to research was basically, or my path to graduate school was like, I started at Cornerstone Research. I really didn't like it. Yeah. I like applied to grad school like three months in. I was like, <laughs> all right, I've seen the outside world. <laughs> like I've had enough of this outside corporate world. <laughs> like bring me back to school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you were only you worked there for like a year i worked there for a year so i yeah. like i started there in like i don't know july or august yeah. like i had to apply to grad school in like what is it november december right right so by like three or four months in i was like get me out of here yeah yeah um and so i applied to grad school and then i was like you know well, I had to wait to hear from grad school, but then like once I got into grad school in like January, February, I was like kind of a lame duck there for like a year. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you go to Harvard, so like you, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know what it would be like, but um, what did it feel like when you're stepping in there? It's like, you know, one of the best programs in the world and in history and it's super famous. And what did it feel like when you were like a brand new first year student going there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that it felt like there was a lot of uncertainty because like I'd always been one of the best students. Mm. Right. So like, you know, middle school, elementary school, high school, college, I was like always like, you know, towards the top. And then it was like, but OK, like, you know, 
everyone else here was also basically in that yeah. shoes. And so just kind of like, I think it was the first time, maybe I had a little bit of this, about, of this in undergrad, but like trying to figure out, you know, like a little bit like, you know, rookie getting to the major leagues type of thing, you know, like every mm-hmm. rookie getting to the major leagues was like a star in like every other level right. that they'd ever played. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. there definitely was a bit of that of just like figuring out like, you know, who am I as an economist? Like, am I any good at this stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think certainly like, you know, until you get to your like fourth or fifth year, you're like, at least I was not particularly good at doing research. And so like, there was a lot of figuring out of like, can I do this research thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess the, the one other thing I would say, I guess, about getting to Harvard is, so as I mentioned, like, I did not have a lot of research experience. And like, I would even say, like, I didn't even really, like, know that a PhD, like, the purpose of the PhD was doing research at, like, the exclusion of, like, pretty much anything else. Right. Like, so... so so I, I mean, at Penn, I had like amazing coursework. Like, you know, they gave us an econ model. They were like, solve the model. Here's the intuition for the model. Like, I felt like I really understood theory well. Yeah. Like, you know, micro theory, macro theory, metrics theory. Like if you said like, find the Nash equilibrium of this game, I knew how to find the Nash equilibrium of the game. If you said like, show this estimator is consistent, sufficient, whatever. Like I had the technical tools really well. Right. But for whatever reason, like I just, maybe it's the culture of the place. Maybe it's just me. I was just like not super involved in research there. I worked a little bit as a research assistant one summer for like a sociology professor. I did a little bit of data work for UFUK, but not a whole lot. And I was just like not very involved in research. To be honest, like there was an option of writing a senior thesis. And, you know, I asked the professor there, you know, should I write a senior senior thesis or like, would it be better to, you know, like take grad econometrics as a senior and this person said to me, well, like, usually our undergrad theses are not particularly good. So, like, take the class. Yeah. Like, and, I, and so I sort of, like, I sort of just had this view of, like, you know, econ is something you, like, learn in classes and you solve a bunch of problems. And, like, I'm just going to get to grad school. I'm going to learn how to solve the problems, like, even better. And then, like, eventually mm-hmm. I'm going to figure out, like, what I do research. And, like, I, I, you know, I wasn't completely unaware that you had to write a thesis, but it just, like, I kind of came in with this impression that like, you know, I don't know enough theory to do research yet. Like I'm going to have to learn two more years of theory and then like I'll work on, on research. And so it was a little bit of a culture shock. Like I arrived there on day one and people were like, what do you want to do research in? And I was like, I have no idea like what I want to do. I want to do research in problem sets. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Like, I came here to solve some problem sets. Like, I thought for the next two years, like, I'm just going to be solving some problem sets. Like, like, that's what I know how to do. And I, and I like solving econ problem sets. Right. You know, I find it interesting. Right. But it was so I think that actually the biggest culture shock of arriving in Harvard was there were a lot of people there that had, you know, worked for, or say, like Ross Chetty for two years or like, you know, had whatever reason had like more exposure to research. And so they came in with this, uh, like, you know, 
the literature on the returns to schooling has said like X, Y, and Z, but they've never studied it in this new context or like, I have this idea for this new instrumental variable for this cool thing. And that was like very much like outside of the realm of things that I was like thinking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, like I would even go to the, to the extreme to say that like, I think the number of empirical econ papers I'd read at undergrad, I could count on like one hand. Yeah. Right. So like I solved a lot of theory models. I like solving the theory. Maybe someone in a slide would have like a table of like, here's some results that like suggest, you know, this theory is good or it fits right. the data or something. Yeah. But in terms of like, you know, empirical papers, having like actually opened up a paper, I think the number of papers that I did was like, you know, could have been two, you know, yeah. like I just had basically not seen like, you know, the types of like method stuff that I work on now, like, yeah. you know, difference in differences. Like, I'm not sure I'd read a difference in differences paper, right? Like in undergrad, like yeah, yeah, I showed yeah. up at Harvard and there were these kids who were like, Oh, like I'm thinking of running this dip and dip or this like IV. And I like, you know, I could like tell you the theory of like the exclusion restriction. And like, if you have a valid IV, like here's the like GMM, you got to run. But I was like, like, like that whole world of like, I have these empirical ideas, like, right. you know, these are the types of like, you know, like mostly harmless tool set, like types of papers. That was like all very new to me when I got to Harvard. Well, so when does it change? What happens the switch where you go from being a problem set guy to being a research you know, a researcher. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess it's, you know, started to switch right away, but I, I guess like, you know, so, um, I guess it was something that was influential for me was just so the, um, during the year that I was, um, at Cornerstone, wasting yeah. away at my, you know, my desk job at Cornerstone. I somehow, I don't know how this happened. I came across the Dalen Kruger paper on returns to elite colleges. Yeah. And I'd gone to Penn, you know, Ivy League school. And I just, you know, I'd been indoctrinated with this view that, of course, you know, there are these massive returns for getting into an elite college. Right. And, um, so somehow a friend and I came across this Dale and Kruger paper that basically suggests that like, it's all selection that, you know, if you look at kids that got into the same sets of colleges, but one of them, you know, went to Penn, the other one went to Penn state, but there's like basically no difference in their earnings. Mm -hmm. And I sort of, you know, I came in with this almost degenerate prior that right. like this thing was like, could not possibly be true. Right. And so I like wanted to like I got interested in labor economics because I like wanted to like uh -huh. play around with this data and prove that it was wrong. I think at some point, actually, my friend and I like sent an email to Alan Kruger. He was like still alive at the time. And it was like, can you send us this data? And he was like, no, it's like under a DUA. But like if you'd like to, you know, respond, you know, if you like to use it, you can like apply for the, the DUA. Right. You know, at this and this link. And like, I give Alan Kruger a lot of credit for responding. Like I was like a nobody like emailing Alan Kruger at that point in time. Um, but so, so that, that paper kind of got me interested in like labor econ types of questions, like returns yeah. to schooling types of things. And so 
I started reading a little bit more of like those types of papers. And so I guess mm -hmm. that kind of got me into labor econ. Um, and so like by the summer after my first year in grad school, I worked for Larry Katz. Mm. Um, and I was like kind of interested in like education e type of stuff. So like mm. I, I have this working paper that probably I will never publish, but on uh, Scott Walker's union reform uh, in Wisconsin, Act yeah. 10, and like what that does to teacher labor supply. So uh, I had these results that, um, you know, there are a lot of early retirements yeah. basically immediately when this thing kicks into effect or actually between when it was sort of passed as law and when it kicked into effect, there's just like this massive wave of teacher retirements. Yeah. You can, you know, you don't need any kind of metrics to see it. Basically you just plot the time series of like what fraction of, you know, retirement age teachers leave the system yeah. and you just, you just see it in the time series. There's this massive spike. And so, you know, if you look into the institutional details, you see that uh, there were basically uh, these massive financial incentives to retire before your district's collective bargaining agreement that was bargained under the old regime retired. Yeah. Because there was this concern that once you sort of severely weaken collective bargaining, that a lot of those benefits won't be there anymore. Right. And indeed, it turned out that a lot of those benefits, if you had waited, would not be there anymore if you'd waited. Yeah. And so there was just this rush of teachers that were leaving, you know, uh, the system at the onset of this uh, union busting reform. Yeah. And so that you could see in the time series. And then uh, I was sort of trying to figure out what did that do to students' outcomes? So, yeah. if, you know, if you were in a place where the fifth grade teacher used to be, you know, this 56 year old who now leaves, does that harm your test score? Right. And so then I started getting into all of these diff and diff things, comparing these places that had these retirement eligible oh. teachers to places that didn't have these retirement eligible teachers. Yeah. And so if I'm being honest, you know, I ran a bunch of different specifications and some of them had pre-trends and some of them didn't have pre-trends. Right. And I was kind of following, you know, my advisor was like, all right, like this design seems to work. It doesn't have any pre-trends. Like, let's go with that one. Right. And so that's how I sort of started getting into the kind of diff and diff stuff mm -hmm. of thinking about I'm running all these diff and diffs. I'm going to select the ones where I don't find any statistically significant pre-trends. Is that an econometrically good thing to be doing or not? Yeah, right. And so that's kind of how like my AR insights paper basically came out of that exercise of right. like, I was like running all these diff and diffs. I was trying to find the ones with good pre-trends. And then I started thinking about like, is this really how science is supposed to work? Right, right, right. And so that's kind of like, that's kind of was my entree into actually doing econometrics research of like, yeah. I was working on this labor problem. Like I had this diff and diff, some of them worked, some of them didn't. Yeah. You know, the kind of what I thought was like the science at the time was like, look at the ones that work. Yeah. But I was like kind of uneasy of like, is that how the science should work? And so like, am I getting mm. the right thing? And so yeah. that was kind of the genesis of my AR insights paper. Uh -huh. And then like, I kind of started working on this problem. Um, I should say that. So I guess I mainly had my foot in the labor door, but I was interested in econometrics mm -hmm. or like methodological type of stuff. So I'd taken like Ariel Pecos's, um, uh IO class 
and he did a bunch of stuff on moment inequalities. And I was kind of interested in like, like I was asking him a bunch of technical questions. Again, having come from this background of like, I could solve problems, right? Like I knew how to do problem sets. I knew how to like, do you need these regularity conditions? Like what, you know, properties of this estimator exist? So I took Ariel's class, um, IO class, where he did some moment inequality stuff. And I was asking him a bunch of econometrics questions about the moment inequality stuff. Right. And so that was in my second year. And so he had started working on this project that's now my restud paper with Ariel Isaiah, Ariel Pegas and Isaiah Andrews on moment inequalities. Yeah. And so I was asking all these questions about moment inequalities and he was like, you know, I'm like work starting to work on this project with Isaiah, who at the time was a postdoc at Harvard. Oh. And was like, do you want to do you want to work as an RA on this project? And so I started working as an RA on that project, but it wasn't like my main area of interest. It was just like something I was kind of doing on the side. It seemed kind of interesting. Like mm-hmm. Ariel was like a famous guy. To be honest, at the time, I didn't really know who Isaiah was, but yeah. I was working on this project, started as an RA, eventually became a co-author with Ariel and Isaiah. And so. I mentioned that because I, that means, so I had this connection to Isaiah, right? Right. Like I'd been working on as an RA and like later became a co-author on this project. And so I then was working on this diff and diff stuff and started coming on these questions about like, so should we be like selecting our designs based on whether the pre-trends look good or not? And so I like started writing some stuff up and then like Isaiah was like, I don't know if he was a co-author yet at that time, but he was someone that I'd been like, you know, working pretty closely with and so i wrote some honestly really terrible notes like i like did not know how to write like econometrics papers at that point but i wrote like some notes with some like ideas about kind of thinking about this problem yeah and i sent them to isaiah and was like is this interesting from an econometrics perspective right and isaiah is like the greatest person in the world so he wrote back like this seems like really good. And like, by the way, like all your proofs are wrong. And like, you should like, you know, like, <laughs> we're not really wrong. Like the, you know, this was not written up in the crispest way. And like, also you should like consider thinking about it from like this and this angle. Right. But so that's like kind of how I started going in econometrics. Like I yeah. was working on labor econ stuff, but there were like these the econometrics issues. I was like, as kind of a side project working as an RA and this like really technical, like moment inequality stuff. Mm-hmm. And that got me connected with Isaiah. And then like I started getting going on my own on this pre-testing stuff. I kind of was, you know, sending it to Isaiah and getting good feedback. And that's like kind of how I got going. And then like right. I really liked working on that project. Like, you know, that project kind of spawned a bunch of other related projects. And then yeah. I just kind of started going. Like I got chugging with econometric stuff. Um And then I liked doing it. And there was kind of like a moment of reckoning of like, I was planning to go on the market as like an applied micro person, but then I was working on all this metric stuff. And so there was a little bit of like an identity crisis in like my fourth Mm. year of like, which type of student am I? Like, can I go on the market? And I think like, you know, I'm not that old. Like I was on the market three years ago, right? right? But like, I do think that like, you know, so like when I was thinking about going on the market, like, you know, say two years before I was on the market. So we're talking five years ago, there was definitely much less of a applied econometrics sector, so to speak, than there was now. You know, like mm-hmm. my advisors told me you can go on the market as econometrics, but there's got to be like some serious theory and proofs there. 
yeah. you can like like I was basically told like applied econometrics is like a place to die on the job market. Oh, uh, and so there was like kind of this like moment of reckoning of like you know like I thought like you just had to write a good job market paper, right? But then it, like it got into this things of like what well, you can't really write a good job market paper in applied econometrics because like the applied people are like. I would love for the econometricians to hire this guy and the metrics people would be like, well, I'd love for the applied guys to, to hire this guy. So you like, and the kind of advice I got, which I think, I mean, it was definitely very good advice at the time, but is like, I think to some extent, unfortunately is still true now is that when you're on the job market, you have to have some group that's very excited about you that goes to the meeting and they're like, we got to hire this guy. Like this yeah. is like such a fantastic opportunity. Like, right. I mean, I think, you know, like I served on the hiring committee at Brown. So like, that's definitely true. Like you have to have a coalition that's very excited about you. Yeah, right. Um, and so there was a little bit of this moment of reckoning of like, am I going to go econometrics or am I going to go oh, like the applied route? Right. And so like in my fourth year, I, uh, I was still kind of thinking like I'd written my, what became my AR insights paper. Mm. That was like an econometrics project. And then I working on, like, I have this, this, um, paper that Ashish and I published in a computer science uh, proceedings on like algorithmic fairness stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was kind of working on that with Ashish. Um, and uh, I was sort of thinking I was going to go the like technical applied guy route. And like, we had some of this like applied, uh, sorry, we had some of this algorithmic fairness, like applied theory type of stuff. And I was going to get some data and like show that like our theory was, was right. Mm -hmm. And so I like started like applying to some data sets. Like there was some bank that Sendel Mulanathan connected with me that had some like lending data that I could use. So I like kind of submitted that like application for this data. And then I was like waiting on the data to come. And like, I'm honestly super thankful that this bank wound up being like really flaky and like <laughs> didn't come through with this DUA for like a long time because like in the meantime, I was like, oh, like, you know, I can work on this econometric stuff while I'm waiting for like data to come through. Uh -oh. And so like Ashish and I had been working on our algorithmic fairness stuff. And then we like were talking about like my pretesting paper and like, how can you do it better? And that was kind of like the genesis for our like a more credible approach to parallel trends. Yeah. You know, paper, which wound up being my job market paper. So I was like basically like kind of waiting for data to come through. I was like going to like you know, kind of in this in-between space, am I an econometrician? Am I an applied person? And then like Ashish and I started talking while I was waiting for this data to come through. And so I started working on this like more, a little bit more hardcore econometrics project, which has yeah. like, you know, some more hardcore stuff in it. And then I liked working on that project. And so like, I'd kind of been like, all right, like I'm going to like try and see if like, you know, some more applied stuff works out. And then like, I wound up working on more hardcore econometric stuff. Yeah. And that kind of just convinced me that like, this seems to be what I'm gravitating towards. And so yeah. like, I decided, you know what, like, fuck it. Like maybe I'm like on the applied end of econometrics, but right. I'm just like going to go the econometrics route. Um, and like ex post that definitely wound up being the, um, the right decision for me. Yeah. And then kind of, I think like the, unexpected blessing was like I was working on all this diff and diff stuff which like at the time was like I think just like a dead area of research like when I first sent Larry Katz like a draft of my pre-testing paper he was like this sounds really interesting but like does anyone still work on diff and diff these days you know like right. it was like 
Athian Imbed's 2006, like, changes and changes model. And then, like, almost no, like, you know, top publications on diff and diff stuff. Like, there was a little bit, small number of clusters, but, like, right. really not a lot. Right. And then, like, all this, like, staggered treatment timing stuff, which was, like, you know, on diff and diff, but from a very different angle from what I was doing. Yeah. Like, kind of took off at the same time. And then I, I guess, you know, even beyond that, just, like, I think, like, applied econometrics just, like, kind of took off, I think. Mm know around that time just like more and more people doing it and i think you know um so i I think john can you sort of for the sake of the listener that that sort of can't follow the nuances when is it is it that you're saying like within the community of a pure econometrician the this idea of do of them doing the applied work is is historically not as common as it is right now is that what you're saying so uh, i think i'm saying a couple of things so I mean, I think, you know, up until about, say, five years ago, so like the decade between 15 years ago and five years ago, yeah, let's say, I think the econometrics community became more and more theoretical and mm-hmm. in some sense a little bit kind of um, separated, let's say, from applied work, yeah. right? So like applied, and, and I think, you know, as someone who lives a little bit kind of between the communities of applied people, like I kind of understand this from both sides. So I think from like the econometric side, you know, they did a lot of work on like partial identification, like moment inequalities. They did a lot of work on like weak identification and nonlinear models and stuff like that. And the adoption in applied work was relatively low. So I think, you know, from the econometric side, they're like, oh, like, you know, we're developing all these tools, weak identification, you know, like Anderson Rubin, all these new, you know, I guess Anderson Rubin's not new, but like all these new types of tools and methods, not only your models, and no one's using them. Right. Right. And so kind of the people who appreciate my stuff is other econometricians. And so right. the community kind of became insular. Yeah. But then when you have an insular community, you know, you write papers for the insular community. And so I think that had kind of a snowball effect where like the econometrics papers were written for econometrics referees. Yeah. They became very technical papers that in turn made them very hard to penetrate for applied researchers. Right. And so that made kind of the, the gap even larger. Right. And so you had like this hardcore theory econometrics community, and then you had this applied community. It's like not super well connected to the econometrics community. But then that kind of mean meant that there were like all these applied problems on things like diff, yeah. diff or bardic instruments or stuff that was oh. like the econometrics community was not super plugged in right. to what was kind of going on in the applied worlds. Yeah. And then the applied worlds, you know, like weren't necessarily so prone to think about these econometrics issues. Huh. I mean, that that's kind of my sense. You know, I yeah. guess I I guess I can't say, you know, like was I reading a lot of papers in Econometrica in 2005? No. Right. So I guess I was, you know, I was like in grad school for kind of the tail end of this, but like, that's kind of my perception of, of sort of knowing a lot of these people on, on kind of both sides of the aisle, so to speak, between econometrics and, and applied work. And so I think there was a little bit of this gap between like, you know, hardcore econometrics theory and like applied work. 
Yeah. Where like there were actually really important questions about stuff like diff and diff or bardic instruments or stuff like that. Yeah. That I think over the last, you know, five or six years have started to get filled in with like more people in that space. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like, you know, people like me or, you know, uh, like, you know, Clamaches, Martens, Foy from the like metric side and then also like the like theory and like the uh, the techie end of the applied people i mean i don't think these distinctions are like super yeah. useful but you know there are people like myself who went on the market as econometrics and then there are people like peter hall or pat klein who went on the market as like labor economists but do like you know techie yeah. uh you know applied econometric stuff who like we're probably closer to each other in like yeah. kind of the space of things that we do, but like went on the markets in different fields, right. which I think is just like testament to the kind of bifurcation of that market, right? Like you're like I, either hardcore econometrics or you're uh, like an applied person. And I think like, you know, Peter, who's my colleague and friend and I like both kind of discuss how like we had this identity crisis going on the market. Like, you know, what we do was not really considered a field, at least at that time. And so, um, you know, kind of he went from the really techie end of labor and I went from the really applied end of metrics. Um, but I think now that space is starting to get more people in it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping, I think, I think now it's, it's hopefully easier to be on the market as say like a metrics person with a, you know, more applied paper. Yeah. Um, and I think actually I, I would say, you know, I was warned that like applied econometrics isn't really a field. Um, and like, it's true. Someone has to get excited about you. But then when I was on the market at a lot of places, I mean, there's of course a selection bias of which places flew me out. Right. But like mm -hmm. the places that flew me out, I just felt like there was just like a ton of pent up demand right. of like, you know, people who were like, we would love to have an econometrician who we can talk to about right. like our different discs. Right. And we just like, don't see a lot of people in this space, but we would like love to have you know, someone like you around that's both plugged into the econometrics group, but is also, you know, working on these applied problems and will yeah. like, you know, advise students, help faculty, et cetera, in that space. Um, so I think one of the things I've been really happy to see over the last five or six years is just like more and more places hiring people in that space. And then that in turn kind of, you know, lets people feel like, you know, they're not going to be unemployed if they kind of write theses in this space and go on the market in this space. So um, I think that's kind of both my journey, but I think also the journey of a bunch of other people kind of that are now filling in this space of applied econometrics stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which has been really exciting. Yeah. I think that was, you think that was partly because of the impact of these, like these IV papers, like Bardic, like Paul, Paul Goltz with Pinkham and, and Kirill and Peter's work on shift share. And then all these different diff econometricians, you think that's where all of a sudden there's this like, convert this closer conversation between the econometrics community and the applied community or did you think it was already happening before that those are the two touchstones that i kind of notice uh yeah i mean i guess i don't want to take too much credit that like you know my literature the different diff <laughs> literature like just brought about this fantastic <laughs> right, change in the right. world right. um, <laughs> but <laughs> 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 the healing power yeah it was specifically you know roth 2022 <laughs> and roth and Ramachin 2023 that like you know um 
So, so I mean, like, I, I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but those are like, I think definitely like two of the most prominent examples of like stuff going on like yeah. in this applied space. Right. Um, you know, I think like, you know, maybe some of the synthetic control I would also put in, in that stuff. Right. So like, you know, Alberto's work and, mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff that, that came after that, like the stuff by like Avi Feller and co-authors and stuff on like, yeah. you know, practical issues with synthetic control. I think I would put in there as well. And then, you know, maybe from the more applied side, like, you know, there's been, there was like a lot of stuff on like teacher value added and yeah. like, you know, base shrinkage and stuff like that. That was also right. kind of in this space. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I don't think it was, it wasn't exclusively the, the diff and diff people, but I think that definitely, you know, furthered things along and, or at least was like, you know, sort of one of the like key examples of an area that kind of got filled in, in this space that, you know, people are like, Oh, like people are doing different, different so long. Why is it? There's all of a sudden like a million papers on this topic. <laughs> right, and I think, right. you know, like, I think that kind of, you know, is, is a, you know, example of this thing where like, there weren't a lot of people that were just like working in this like applied econometric space for, you know, span of several mm. years. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I didn't really think about that, but you know, having this mass of econometricians in a particular topic is probably that the, this, the, like agglomeration effects of that kind of thing is going to cause the cause of like an explosion of insight. And there's so many people in diff and diff now working. I'm sure it's just been like so productive for just deepening everybody's understanding of what the heck that is. I mean, it's such like a, I hadn't really thought, you know, it's like you could imagine a tipping point kind of does happen when there's just a lot of people that start working on it. All of a sudden it's, it's not just that a lot of people are working on it is that you have all these different ways of collaborating when you've collaborated with a bunch of people on this stuff. Um, yeah. Well, let me ask you something. So this kind of, the, kind of is top of the hour. So I wanted to sort of kind of end with this, like, you uh, kind of like a dear John Roth kind of question. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of young people. Uh, there's a lot of young economists and there's a lot of data scientists that are kind of looking to make a impact in their fields. And, you know, because you've been out for three years and because you've, you know, are, have sort of had a big impact already, you know, you probably have a real good, uh, you know, sense of vision of like what the, what the world's like right now and you know what you sort of see going so i was just kind of like wondering i mean for some for somebody out there who's you know very young in their area who's in a you know has uh maybe some desire to do applied work or econometrics or whatever even in industry because you were at microsoft for a while so what what kind of advice would you give those people looking to have you know make a make a difference in their fields yeah good question so you know, I, I guess I, I've gotten versions of this questions from, from graduate students for sure. Uh, and the kind of usual thing I, usual advice I give is just work on what you think is interesting. Yeah. Um, and I guess people always have this, um, you know, approach of like, what do you think will work well on the job market? Right. You know, is, is this going to be a good job market paper? And, and I certainly had this attitude, you know, as I mentioned, like, I had all these misgivings. Am I an econometrician? Am I an applied person? And I guess my kind of, with hindsight, my view is that it's just so hard to predict 
what the yeah. market is going to want. Right. You know, when I started working on this pre-testing stuff in like, I don't know, 2016, mm-hmm. I had like zero way of foreseeing that there would be like a diff and diff revolution or whatever right. it's, you know, like the fact that that became like a hot thing was just so far off the horizon. And so, you know, you could work on diff and diff now, and there's a lot of interest in it now, but like, can I promise you that there's going to be so much interest in diff and diff in five years? You know, not really. So I, I think, you know, in some sense, I think it's hard to predict what the market is going to want. Right. And then I think even if you can predict what the market is going to want, then it's, um, you know, it's not obvious that it's the best thing for you to do what you think the market is going to want. Yeah. Just because it's really hard to work on stuff that you're not passionate about. Right. And I think this is especially true in academia. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I kind of take a pay cut relative to what we could earn elsewhere mm-hmm. for being in academia because it has like this awesome perk to it that we can work on the stuff that we think is interesting. Right. And so I think especially for people like in PhD programs, to me, it's sort of like if you're going to let the market determine what it is that you want to work on and work on something that you're not really interested in, yeah, then like you're taking the pay cut, but not getting the compensating differential, right? right? So like, you know, if you want to work on what the market values, like, go work for Amazon or Microsoft or Uber or something. I mean, like you're going to make a lot more money and like, you know, probably work better or definitely not worse hours, you know, working on what kind of the market thinks is an interesting problem. Yeah. So to me, like, you know, that the perk of being in academia is like, you get to work on what you want. Right. And so if you're going to be in academia, you should work on something you find interesting. Right. And then even from like a just pure, like maximizing success. Yeah. Um, I at least find that the publication process in econ takes so long. Right. That by the time my paper is published, I am so friggin' tired of that paper. Like yeah. I never want to touch it again. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's with projects that like, I've basically told myself, like, I'm only going to work on projects I find interesting. So, you know, the first six months of the project are really interesting, like getting out of drafts, getting feedback on it is kind of interesting. Like presenting it is interesting for the first few times. Then like you get kind of bored. Then eventually like the paper gets an R and R at that point, you're like so tired of this paper then like you submit it, you maybe get a second round or a conditional accept at that point, you like never want to see this paper again. And then like, by the time it's published, like you really like, you know, I would rather watch paint dry than like think about this paper again. Yeah. And, and so that's with like, I was really interested in this project at the beginning. And so it's just like very hard for me to imagine like going through all that process. If even at the beginning, you're not interested in this project right and so i think my advice for grad students or like young people is just kind of follow what you're interested in because it's very hard to predict what the market's going to like especially in academia like the benefit of academia is you can work on what you want right and also it's just it's very hard to successfully innovate on stuff that you're not interested in totally and so if you're in any kind of creative field like you kind of got to just work on the stuff that you think you're interested in because that's the kind of stuff where you're gonna 
be thinking about it in the shower and be thinking about it when you're going on a walk. And like, that's yeah. kind of when inspiration strikes. Right. So I think that just kind of like for all of these reasons, like my advice is just, you know, work on problems that you think are important and that you think are interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Well, man, this has been so much fun. Uh, you know, I felt like we've only just chatted on the internet. And so it's really nice to, to hang out and get to hear more of your story. Can you say for the sake of the re the listener though, about the workshop that you're going to be doing and what that's going to be about and when that is. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm going to do uh, this, this, this is the second I, I did one of these last year. Uh, I think it's called an advanced diff and diff workshop. Um, so it'll be a, a one day thing um, kind of start up with the canonical difference and differences model. What I think people understood pretty well, you know, five or 10 years ago, basically what I teach to my undergrads, you know, two periods, treatment in the second period, yada, yada, yada. Right. And then kind of talk about, uh, I guess, two strands of relaxations of that model. Mm. So I'll start in the morning with recent stuff about staggered treatment timing. So instead yeah. of two periods, you have multiple periods, some of the treatments, you know, some units get treated in 2011, some get treated in 2012 and so on. Uh, and kind of the complications that arise when we get to that model and the, the recent innovations that have happened in that literature. Uh, and then I'll talk about stuff more closely related to most of my own work on difference and differences, which is about, well, we often don't know about parallel trends and how effectively can we test for it? And how can we kind of accommodate certain violations of parallel trends uh, and stuff like that? Um, so those will kind of be the two main uh, sections of the class once we go through the basic model and yeah. then for each of those sections uh i both give uh kind of lectures on the theory but i also try and make it really practical um so uh each of those you know we kind of do the lecture and then after each one there's a, a coding exercise yeah so uh, i have this nice example with kind of how does health insurance coverage change when states expand Medicaid? And uh -huh. so it has some elements of the staggered treatment timing, but also some elements of we might worry that, you know, the Democratic leaning states that expanded are different from the Republican leaning states that didn't expand. And so mm. how do we think about, you know, potential violations and parallel trends in that context? Yeah. And so uh, you'll kind of get a chance to not just learn about it in theory, but also open up our data uh and uh code these things up yeah you know since you've been at microsoft would you say that this is the kind of workshop that you would you could imagine people in tech would be interested in and and if you could just like you know if you had to explain like you know if you were talking to somebody in tech and you would say you know this is this is why i think it would be useful what would you say to somebody like that yeah so i, I mean i think you know obviously useful for academics but i think also useful for people in tech uh at least when I was at Microsoft, you know, they could randomize certain things, but there were also a lot of things that they couldn't randomize. And so there were a lot of, you know, diff and diff or synthetic control type of applications around, you know, we introduced this product in, you know, the Northeast of the United States uh, and we didn't in the Northwest or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's been, you know, a lot of innovation recently in tools for doing that. And so I do think for sure, you know, for people in tech using these types of quasi-experimental methods, uh, this could be super useful as well. Cool, cool. Well, man, it's so nice to hang out. Uh, and uh, I'll I'll put in the in the um, 
I'll put in the podcast on the Substack a, a link to the workshop. But it's 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 really great to see you, and I uh, uh, really enjoyed our our talk. Yeah, this is really fun. Let's uh let's do it again some other time. Okay, That'd be great. All right, cool. all right. Thanks, Scott. See you, man. Bye.